out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. So this week, it's going to be the turn of the... Well, American-British band, it is the one and only Carmen, who I spoke to their main man, David Clark Allen, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. And for those who may be aware of the band, um, they were active in the early 70s, and uh, was a sort of a, a fusion mashup of rock, prog rock, and flamenco. I know you didn't think that was going to be on the agenda, but it is. And it's quite an amazing sound. So um, if you get a chance, do check out their albums. They're available everywhere. And um, also, with the interview, we sort of delve before and after the uh, career of Carmen. So anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, which we edit out, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. David, we are all on the edge of our seats. Take it away. Wow. Yeah. I've been making music since I was two um, in, in that uh, I asked my dad who played guitar to, to teach me. I picked up the guitar and, and was miming what I saw him doing with his fingers. Um, so I was making music, the guitar I would say is what got me going when I was two, but uh, musically, I would say it was The Lion Sleeps Tonight, the original yes. uh, single back, uh, I guess that would have been 58, maybe 59, something like that, 60, maybe. So where, so where were you actually, where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Hollywood. You, uh, blimey, that's better than Orange, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well you know what every place is what you know yes absolutely. although i wasn't born in hollywood i was born in san diego lived my first six years in san diego and then we moved up to la to hollywood because uh, my parents were in the in show business and that was um where their hopes and goals resided and uh lived there ever since uh, had a short stint in new york city uh when i was nine for a year um my so God. so who who were your parents by the way well my mother margarita cordova has had a long successful career in film and tv never as a star but always with good parts and always working and she and my dad my dad was a fine art painter besides a guitarist and that's what he did for the first maybe six years of my life. Um, and then when he moved up uh, to Hollywood, it worked and he made some connections and she, he got uh, doing live uh, theater uh, as sort of a singer, songwriter, speaker, and um, made connections that way. So we stayed in Hollywood and um, they started a nightclub because all of that was fine, but it didn't make steady money. No. So they ended up starting a nightclub because they had a, a, a flamenco show they did. And um, when the club they thought was going to sign them up for three years folded in the first month or two, you know, they thought, 
we got to come up with a solution really quick here. Mm. Um, so they started their own flamenco nightclub called El Cid, which uh, now, gosh, it's like almost 60 years since they started it. And it's uh, an L.A. icon. Uh, it's it, I forget there, there's a term for it, but it's one of the sort of the L.A. equivalent of the stately building over here that has a blue blue plaque. Yes. Well, it's got the American equivalent in L.A. So I worked there a lot. Um, but the lion sleeps tonight is the first one. And then I think it was the Beatles. The Beatles just changed my life because I was going to be a flamenco solo flamenco guitarist. My parents had all the connections. Uh, I, I could have toured and, and worked uh, as whenever I wanted, pretty much. Um, Beatles happened and I lost total interest in, in that kind of music and immediately started forming bands and, and writing songs, which I really hadn't done. I just played uh, more or less sort of uh, well-known Spanish classical and flamenco solo pieces. Yes. Um, so the Beatles, yeah, about 1964, just, whoa, I couldn't believe it. Best yes. thing ever, I thought. So you were the perfect age for that experience, weren't you, of, of seeing that kind of... 13, yeah, 12, 13. Uh, I love the Everly Brothers. The Beatles love the Everly Brothers, so there were similar harmonies. Uh, I love the Beach Boys, uh, which was a very L.A. thing to begin with, Southern Californian. Um, and again, the harmonies. So harmony was like really important to me for a long time. Yes, absolutely. So so you must have, by the time that this, because obviously 63, 62, 63, you know, things, you know, pop music was just kind of developing at that stage, you know, with the Beatles and bands writing their own material. And then the Rolling Stones came along and then the Kinks. But then it was kind of, then 67 was kind of when this kind of psychedelic kind of world started. And, you know, mm. obviously the, the drugs had a huge bit of a bit of a <sighs> moment in that. So in, in sort of California in, in 67, which was the summer of love that particular year, mm. you know, January, you had the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco at the Golden Gate, uh, Golden Park. I think that was the one, isn't it? With Holy people Gate. like Alan, yeah, Alan right. Ginsberg and, and yeah. uh, Country Joe. And there was also members of the Grateful Dead and everyone was having a good time. And then in July that year, there was the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally in London where you had Pink Floyd and Yoko Ono. And, you know, everybody was getting very excited. And I'd done an interview with Joe Boyd who said that he remembers that next morning thinking, you know, the sun was rising. They'd had this ex extraordinary experience. It felt like... They'd won. He said it was just amazing. So you you were at the perfect age to sort of you had youth on your on your side and and good knees and ankles as well. Your body was still <laughs> is still no. There was no creaking. If if anything, I was about two to three years too young to fully um, appreciate everything. I was at the Monterey Pop Festival, but I was fifteen, um, uh, and I went to see Jimi Hendrix, who. If anyone changed my life, he was the first. Hendrix, I permanented my hair the minute I saw him and heard his music. I didn't think I'd ever heard anything so wonderful, uh, ever. And I saw him live in a little club. I missed him at the Monterey Pop Festival because he had to change his gig. And I was gigging back in LA the, the following evening, so I couldn't stay. They put him on the next day instead. But when I went to do my gig, the fellow who owned the club, 
this was a well-known club called Gazzari's on the Strip. So Bill Gazzari told me, I know you love this guy called Jimi Hendrix, and he's going to be down doing a secret gig at the Whiskey. So um, I'm going to change when you go on so you can go see him. And I've told Frank down there to let you in. So I went down to the Whiskey and saw Hendrix with the original band in a, in a tiny club room almost next to him. And it, it was just life changing for me. I would imagine it would. I, I do. I had a, um, an ex-boss who saw him in London who actually went to see Cream and they were watching, you know, him, Cream, Eric, you know, Eric Clapton and James yeah. Baker. And then suddenly, you know, it was like, oh, by the way, there's this guitarist who wants to sort of have a bit of a jam. And everyone was like, mm, that's a bit weird. You know, people have don't do that kind of thing. And it was Jimi Hendrix and he started playing, I think, was it Killing? Killing floor, killing moon, and um, everyone was like, "Okay, that's something else." You know, it was a kind of game-changing moment, wasn't it? But Hendrix at that stage in at Monterey, I mean, he got introduced to that um, his show by Brian Jones, wasn't it? Because he was kind of at the unknown person who who'd sort of gone to London, had started to get his band together with Chaz Chandler, who sort of got Noel Redding and um, Mitch Mitchell, and and so. So you must have really picked up on Hendrix very quickly before anybody else did. Well, I had been going because not because of me, but because of my parents, I'd been going to Europe and England uh, for quite a few, quite a few years by then. Um, I got very lucky. And at the start, when I was uh, 14, I met someone called David Mallet and David Mallet was Jack Good's sort of understudy producer of the coast-to-coast uh, -coast television show, Shindig. And right. it happened, they were filming it, literally sort of a 15-minute walk from my house. So I walked down there with the demo tape I had of my first band and met David, and we got on, and he signed us up and became our producer-manager for about four years. And through him, every door opened everywhere. I, I had an amazing experience during the 60s uh, because he was in a privileged position. Um, and uh, when, when Hendrix came, I had been in Paris uh, about a year before the uh, Are You Experienced was released. And we had met uh, some French Moroccan musicians there and made friends with them when we went over. We just saw each other on the street, started talking and remained friends. And in fact, did for decades, we knew them. And uh, they told me, you have to see somebody called Jimi Hendrix. Right. Because he's going, to, he's going to blow the world's mind. And that's <laughs> how I found out. Yes, amazing. Yeah. And with the, with the Moroccan connection, was that to do with had Brian Jones already started talking about Morocco, Moroccan the yeah. Moroccan rock scene at that stage? I'm not sure. I met Brian Jones briefly at the Monterey Pop Festival. He was wandering around, blitzed out of his head in the most amazing clothes. Yes, um, that coat. It was, it was such a different world. I was literally just wandering around, saw him and, and we kind of smiled and said hi to each other. And there were no, ro you know, no minders, no nothing. This is you true. Know? Yeah. Well, on, the, on the day that you went to the Monterey Pop Festival, what, what bands did you see on that occasion? Do you know, the only one I remember for sure is Simon and Garfunkel 
who again blew me away. That the harmony was so beautiful. It was unbelievable. Their voices blended like you just can't believe. They were like the Everly Brothers or any of the greats where the two voices complement each other. So I was very taken by that. I think I also saw, um, I'm not sure, but I think I saw Janis Joplin and uh, Big Brother and the Holden Company. Wow. Did, um, just kind of, because it's kind of curious, yeah. was, was the vibe, if you can remember much about mm-hmm. it, now, was it as, you know, as beautiful and innocent and as kind of celebratory as the film makes out and what people have talked about? Yes, it was, but it changed very rapidly, like within a matter of months, because by the time, by that, that was in the summer, I seem to remember, by the time winter had come, I knew something terrible, like the Tate thing. I knew that was inevitable. If you were on the scene and you were in music and out there, I was playing at Gazari's. And I walked out into the parking lot in our break and a fellow walked up to me from San Francisco and he said, oh, I really like your band. You want to see something? And I said, yeah, sure. Because I thought I got a bad feeling about this. And he pulls a sword out of his pants, out of his trousers, Mm -hmm. and he puts it back and he says, that's for the damn witches. One of them cut my toe off in San Francisco the other night. And it was very dark, but I also know San Francisco and hate Ashbury because I used to go up with my parents to eat in restaurants or gig, or they'd teach up around that area. And for all the peace and love, there was a very dark drug side always there and a lot of poverty. Yeah. So, uh, you know, those don't combine well. No. And sh- <laughs> sure enough, you know, within two or three months of that fellow, that meeting in the, in the parking lot, it really affected me. And I told all the band and everything, and I said, watch out, something bad's gonna happen because something's turning. It's not peace and love anymore. And then I met uh, either Squeaky Fromm or one of the others in the whiskey, uh, not long after that. I was a young man and I was always looking <laughs> for women. And, um, they were around and, and seemingly available, but not really. You know, it was like a ploy. Yeah. Um, but I was aware when all of it happened and the names came out of who was involved, I thought, I just met you, you know, not long ago, you know, a few months ago. Yes. My God, that's quite spooky. I mean, that's quite... Yes, the vibe must have been very different, actually, by then. It was very, very, yeah, very dark. It's kind of weird when you can sense somebody like, well, actually, I might I might quickly sort of check, check what's in my pockets and quickly run. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it's quite strange. So then as the 60s progressed, obviously, the kind of one of the interesting things is because because I mean, obviously, I was very young and also in East Anglia. But, you know, Woodstock comes along, you know, and it's at that period because the film makes it look really amazing. But then everyone who's talked about it, who was there, just went, actually, it was real hell. You know, it was it was really lucky there wasn't a major, major kind of 
death scene really because you know there was like three toilets one burger van there was no facilities they hadn't got it organized suddenly all these people turned up if it wasn't you know it was it was kind of on a knife edge but the film comes out and everyone goes wow that looks amazing it's like we were lucky, you know, it that, gets guy, that, that guy <laughs> should never, ever run any uh, more events in his life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think anyone had done or expected for the counterculture to, to be that big an energy. I think it took everyone by surprise. It happened very quickly. It's like the, the youth of the world was waiting for a reason to come alive because there had been World War II, there had been all of that. Now, America managed to skirt the worst of all of that. Uh, Pearl Harbor was terrible and and, uh, there were many things, but most of it didn't happen on our land or ground. And um, I don't know, it's just like, youth was ready to stop being middle-class conservative and following the rules, which had been the way America was. You work hard. I mean, America's a very Puritan in its outlook. And, uh, you know, the sort of nine to 10 hour day was always expected. And all of that type of thing. And uh, all the youth didn't want that anymore. And for a brief period, it was wonderful. I would imagine there was a window there. But then it must have been, uh, you got to that age where you, you must have thought, this is going well. And then suddenly, you know, Jimi Hendrix dies, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you had mm. Alex Bond, and then that turn in the, a decade. And I'd sort of spoke to people like um, Barry Miles, who did, you know, the IT magazine was part of, you know, the London scene. And and I said, yeah. you know, what happened to you in the 70s? You know, there was an exhibition at the V&A. And he said, to be honest, we were all really tired and we just kind of needed to sleep a bit and get our lives a bit, bit back together. But obviously it was kind of, once you're not on the scene, you're really not on the scene because everything changes. I just wondered what it was like for you, sort of, you know, seeing so much had changed within, you know, from Monterey to... 1970 and thinking, wow, that was a bit brutal, you know, because it was all so new as well, wasn't it? (laughs) I was in a strange sort of blessed period of time and bubble. My parents were very successful with a nightclub at the time. So I was financially secure at that point. I was young too and still living at home, but still. I had no, I didn't have to go out and get a nine to five. I was able to just be the musician I was. David Mallett produced and, uh, you know, we were signed. I was signed to about three different labels from 14 to, to 18 and releasing singles and recording. Um, and I didn't have to earn a living from it. So it, it, it was fantastic. So what happened is when David Mallett made the decision to come back to England, that he preferred living there, and then he actually changed, quietly changed careers into filmmaking and video making, like for Cirque du Soleil and the Stones and a lot of music videos and that type of thing. So he changed direction instead of being a music producer. And when that happened, I did have about a year where it seemed like everything was gone. It's, It's like this wonderful dream, and now the person that helped make it all happen left. And that's how Carmen came about. Because during that year, um, I thought, 
what can I do to be part of the music scene now? Because I love Led Zeppelin. I love Genesis. I love Yes. I love all those things, but I don't want to do, you know, I want to be as different as they are. I want to be as original and niche as each one of those bands are, because not one of them sounds like the other. They yeah. all take this new thing that's coming in and do it their way. And so I thought, well, I played flamenco all my life. So how can I combine that with all the elements I love from the three bands in particular that I just mentioned? And that's how Carmen came about. Right. This is interesting because I've got an older brother who's seven mm -hmm. years older than me and his period was the 70s. And he, you know, I was at that age where he'd started buying all these records. Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. Yep. <laughs> and with, with um, there was Black Sabbath and Deep Purple in there, but it was that kind of scene that he was really, and I'd sneak into his room because he said, don't, don't play my record, <laughs> don't cover my room. So I'd have to sneak in, play them, you know, religiously and turn, wow, this is amazing, quickly put them all away and, yeah. um, and was kind of quite obsessed about it. So, so the prog rock world, you know, is kind of well and truly ensconced in my brain. And he also bought, and this was probably 73, 74, he also got Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Sergeant Pepper, which at the time were just like oh this is interesting you know because obviously even though the Beatles had only just broken up it just felt like a completely like a different world actually it's kind of yeah. looking back on it there was no cultural context of this classic album and good, good, goodbye yellow brick road again you know I was obsessed with side four because it had a couple of songs on it one being harmony which was the last track and it was like this music's incredible so yes the prog because when I've been listening to your band it was like god oh, this reminds me of quite a lot of you know this kind of past <laughs> of um, absolutely you you got it there. So so was it 1970 then that the 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 band started, and before that you were in different bands. I was in. Uh, I put together lots of different bands and and sometimes duos, and I always worked with uh, my best friend, a guy called Dennis. And Dennis and I had that thing that um, Simon and Garfunkel did, in that our voices blended into something that made them better together. And they were separately. We, right. we became really, and we, and we practiced all the damn time. So we really were tight and, and could do any harmony, however dissonant, whatever, we were able to do it because we sang together every day. Um, so I went from there to, he was the original lead singer in Carmen. Carmen started in, at sort of the last half of 1969 is when I started trying to figure out what Carmen would be. And it went through a lot of iterations and, and there were nine members to begin with. And then it slowly, I whittled it down until it became five. And uh, Dennis in the end um, had, didn't work out. Um, it, it just went in a different direction than was right for him. And then all the extra guitar players and this, I had three guitar players at one time, but finally brought it down to the five. Then nobody would sign us in America. And I had a manager that managed to get down all, all the biggies from Warner Brothers, Atlantic, all the top people came down to see us. He was a very connected fellow. And they all said, it's a wonderful show but you can't record this. No one's going to buy this. 
and um, didn't sign us. So this is tricky, isn't it? Yeah, that's when I made the decision. This was three years into it. And that's when I made the decision to use the money I had to actually learn how to do something <laughs> properly, have some kind of certificate in music or fly the whole band over to London and see if they had a different attitude there, see if right. someone understood what we were about. It was the most crazy, ridiculous use of money and, and chance ever. So yes. it was quite, it was quite bonkers really, wasn't it? Totally bonkers. And we lost our drummer before we went because he was married and had a kid and his wife said, this is bonkers. <laughs> you know, we can't <laughs> afford this. You have a family. So that was our um, John Glasscock, our bass player's brother. He was our original drummer. Right. So we came over handicapped slightly. There were only four of us. And when we came over in the first month, I did what I've always done. When I'm putting bands together, I go to places where I like the fashion, be it snakeskin jackets, which I loved at the time. And I keep my eye out for the other people there. And I asked, so I walked into this shop in Kensington Market and they sold snakeskin jackets and snakeskin boots. And I asked the fellow who was running it, you wouldn't happen to know a drummer, would you? I'm looking for one. And he said, well, as it happens, I do. And um, I explained to him what we were doing musically. And he said, I think he might be interested. So I'll put you in touch with him when he gets back. He's in South America touring right now. And, you know, I was 20, I think, 21, something like that. And it was like, oh, yeah, he's touring. Well, I've done a lot. You know, I actually have nothing to offer but the music. <laughs> but I believe in it, you know. Yes. And I went in there about two days later uh, because I just loved the jackets and things. And Paul was there. He'd gotten back early and I thought that's got to be the drummer. So I went up to him. We started talking and boom, he joined the band almost on, you know, within an hour of me talking to him. Blimey. So then he said, I've got to find a way to tell my manager because he's not going to believe I'm doing this. Um, joining a band that don't have anything and no money. But I just love what you're talking about. and and it just caught his imagination and through him we ended up going with his manager and through his manager we ended up meeting tony visconti tony visconti and then through tony visconti we ended up meeting david bowie and mark boland and you know roxy music and all of that and um just before be just before that kind of before you left at the late 60s because there's kind of there was the whole kind of theater stuff in in San Francisco like the coquettes and mm -hmm. that kind of scene were you at all influenced by that kind of flamboyant excitement and drama and and wild I didn't it was lots of sex and drugs wasn't it let's yeah I've always thought that was the best I've whatever I've done I've wanted it to scare people I've wanted to shock people. Yeah. I've lived my life looking weird, um, whether I needed to or not, and putting bands together that, you know, I wanted to be up there with the Zeppelins. I wanted to create that kind of noise where people went, oh my God, you know, where do these people come from? So yeah. yes, I was aware of 
everything going on. And, and usually the darker and crazier, the more I loved it. So. Yes. But it's interesting because you mentioned, obviously, David Bowie. And, and during mm-hmm. the 60s, all his work was kind of a bit folky and a bit, you know, listening to some of it now is, is quite unbelievable how much it quickly changed in 1970 or 71. Yeah, no kidding. But he gets his kind of, you know, he starts switching players around and suddenly finds Mick Ronson and then he gets kind of the band and he gets Tony Visconti producing and various other people. So so there, there was this incredible change in his musical direction, but there was also this kind of whole experience with the kind of glam rock, which I know he kind of didn't particularly want to be part of, but actually it did help create quite a flamboyant scene for a very short period of time, didn't it? Which must have felt, coming from America, seeing these people who frankly apart from vaguely Bowie later, didn't crack America at all, did they? No, that that was really interesting because I was unaware of David Bowie and it was Brian Glasscock, John's brother, who said, you gotta have a listen to this person. And he played me the Man Who Changed the World album. And I didn't fully get it. And then about six months later, David Bowie came and played in Los Angeles, a a small gig. and. I got tickets and and the whole band went. And that was like the second, oh my God, my world just changed. So Jimi Hendrix was the first in in terms of live performance. The Beatles were musically, but I saw the Beatles live in the stadium, the Hollywood Bowl, and you couldn't hear anything. It was just nightmarish in terms of sound or like that. And I wasn't interested like... uh, say my sister or younger girls, you know, screaming and getting like that. I wanted to hear the music and you couldn't. Um, But Hendrix's music was unbelievable. David Bowie was unbelievable. I I just thought this guy almost tops Hendrix for me, you know. And then six months later, I come over and before you know it, I know him. You know, so was he on his best friend, but I know him. (laughs) Yes. Was he doing his um, Ziggy Stardust tour during the time? He was doing his final one. He was about to do the final Ziggy Stardust one. And we saw them. I think it was Wembley. He he got us tickets, the band, because by then he'd had us on his TV show. and, And, you know, we'd had dinner with him and that kind of thing. So then, with you, you 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 got your first album out, didn't you? Nineteen seventy three, which That's was right. quite an epic piece. And I listened to that. It does. I mean, apart from the prog thing, there there is kind of an undercurrent. I say an undercurrent. It could be quite big, but um, kind of it really reminds me a lot of the kind of the, those dramatic musicals of that period from the early seventies. You know, from like I suppose it did remind me occasionally of Jesus Christ Superstar, actually. Did it, was there, was there a sort of a musical theatre? Absolutely, absolutely. We had a, a play, a sort of 45, 50 minute musical we used to do based around uh, an old Spanish uh, folk story called right. La Pepera. And um, we were always planning to do that as, as one of the albums and to stage it and, and maybe get it to Broadway because we were able to do it and play our instruments, and because of my sister and Roberto, they could act it out in and dance it. Um, definitely, 
So yes, yes there's a lot of that. <laughs> well, I do love, I mean, and it's interesting because because talk about dramatic, but I know with Jesus Christ Superstar, that, uh, that album that came out in the early 70s, it features Ian Gillen, who went on to be in uh, Deep Purple. And when you hear yeah. those vocals of, of people like that and the sort of the power chords and stuff, you know, to be honest, I just think it's fantastic. And um, and when I was listening to your albums, I think, oh, this does remind me of that kind of prog meets kind of that that very dramatic kind of musical theatre. Really, I mean, it's um, that's that's what sort of jumped out at me, really. Well, I also grew up with um, a mother who not only worked in as an actress in Hollywood, but loved Hollywood film, and so. I read about, there were so many books of the history uh, of the movie industry. I used to listen uh, to all the scores to the films. And, you know, I had my favorite uh, composers and things like that. So I've been aware since I've been, you know, nine or 10 of um, what makes movies work musically, how it shifted you know, from full orchestral, and then it it became sort of jazzy rocky at one point in the 60s and uh, all of that. So all of that was brought into Carmen because mm. these are the things I love. You know. Absolutely. And when you um, went to record it, did you have Tony Fasconti already lined up to be the producer? Because obviously this is going to be quite a complex recording session, isn't it? It was wonderful. I'll tell you. Tony Visconti was probably, is probably the best producer I've ever worked with and facilitator for an artist. We went in and met him and we sang for him live in, in his office. I, me on my guitar and the rest of the band just standing there. And then my sister and Roberto did a little bit of percussion and heel work uh, and dancing, but mainly sang the songs with me on the guitar. And uh, Tony was just grinning the whole time. And he said, okay, I'm gonna set up, I'm gonna set up coming down with my little Revox, he said, to where you rehearse. He said, because I need to take that home then and make sure I understand what you're doing and can actually produce you properly. He said, and then if I can, we'll go for it. And so we said, great. And that's exactly what happened about Three, four days later, he came down with his Revox, came in. We um, played for about an hour while he recorded what we were doing in this little sort of egg crate <laughs> rehearsal room out in High Wickham, where we were all living together. And um, the next day, he phoned up and said, I got it. He said, no problem. Um, and what he was thinking about is editing and things like that, because we did a lot of very complex times. But then Tony had been working with Osibisa and all these different bands. They use very complicated times. And I think he, he realized, oh, this is no different than that. It's not more difficult. You just listen. And so he was wonderful. He could edit on any of the flamenco accents, anything. He, he just was into it. He played on so much of it. He, Played recorder, played bass, a little bit of cello. He, uh, Mary sang. It was just amazing, just amazing. God, you, had Mary, you had Mary Pop, 
Was it not Mary Poppins? Mary, Mary Hopkins, yeah. Poppins. Yes, <laughs> the famous Mary She was Hopkins. lovely. She was lovely. Tony was lovely. He never told us to do anything. He let us do what we did, but he made it sound better. Yes. <laughs> you know, because he just knew how to add the right reverb, echo, saturation, whatever. He knew what things needed. And so, although it seemed like he was letting us just have our way. It would not, those two albums would not have sounded anything like that with that same material and our skill and everything without his wonderful ability to create magic. It's, you know, like uh, scary monsters and all of that. You know, he, he had all the old eventide stuff and everything, and he was doing things nobody was doing back then. Yes, well, I always remember him talking about that. The session he did in Berlin with David Bowie, you know, during mm. his kind of, um, was it the Heroes track and the vocal, getting all the vocal kind of mics kind of lined up and these gates that would open at certain times and just to get that kind of quality. So he was quite a genius at that stage. Had you also by then got yourself a record label, you know, signed up? Because obviously this is still quite a commitment, isn't it, financially? Yeah, well, we were, again, amazingly lucky because at that point, Tony was so hot as a producer, he had a deal with EMI that anyone he wanted to sign he could give them quite a good upfront amount and they were automatically released on EMI. No questions asked. They trusted his taste. So we were on EMI. That is through Tony. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. you look back on those glory days, don't you? And think, wow. Oh, it, it was luck. It was timing, timing that we didn't make, timing that was in the universe and, and luck. And my um ability to trust my own crazy way of doing things like talking to some guy in a snakeskin place and then we saw tony visconti do an interview on the old gray whistle test where he was talking about uh, the different things he did in the studio with mark bolan and how he'd known them and all of that and the whole band was sitting there and we looked and we said that is the person who is going to do it for us he's going to break us He's the one who's going to produce us and get us going. And from then on, that was the focus. And yes. within a month, we were with him. And did you manage to tour very much throughout the, that period? And, you know, around we the country? We toured continuously. We did a long tour in England and, and a lot of little like school gigs and things like that. But then we went to the States and toured for a good solid year, opening for like Santana, uh, Blue Oyster Cult, um, Golden Earring, on and on, Rush, on and on, until Jethro Tull uh, happened to become aware of us because we Electric Light Orchestra. We were opening for everybody all over the country. Um, and then Jethro Tull, that was three months solid. That was a big, heavy working tour. We went, I think, and played almost every state in, in the in the US. Um, so yeah, that, that was almost a year and a half of constant touring. And how were you and how did you find that with, you know, the band and just kind of that kind of we were all about 24. Man, nothing stops you when you're 24. It was just the best. You know, it you don't get tired at that age. Or if you do, you just bounce straight back. 
Yeah, I don't remember it ever being a problem for any of us. <laughs> so with that, because because it's kind of because having done a lot of these interviews and and a lot of the bands, I suppose from the eighties, there is a sort of a, a five year narrative. You know, they get together, twelve months, the honeymoon period. You know, they get a single out. Everything's going mm -hmm. quite quite well. And then you know, especially John Peel is one of those great you know the gatekeepers of our kind of airwaves during that period, and that then gives bands that sort of bit of a lift and then the first album possibly a second album and then the third and and you sort of your narrative is like you really sort of hammer not only playing live but also bringing out three albums in three years so there was there's an incredible work schedule going on you probably didn't really need to buy to have a flat or a house did you or a mattress you're probably just on the run no no we just lived in hollywood inns and and things like that you know or whatever was the cheapest room going and we'd all pile in together which is what a lot of bands did yes uh, and it's yeah then, i mean but, we weren't unusual that was just what you did absolutely did you find that the you were getting a good audience at this stage or were you still feeling a bit like it was it was taking a bit of time it the only reason it felt like it was taking a bit of time is we'd already been together almost four years by this point um and put in an immense amount of work and uh, rehearsal and writing and, and you know, changing and refining. Um, the, sad, the sad thing is that by the time we got off Jethro Tull, I heard uh, a live tape of our whole set that was done somewhere about the middle uh, of the tour when we were just, we were hot. I mean, we sounded better than we did on the albums you've heard. Yeah, I've never heard anything like it. I had no idea that's what we sounded like because being um, being in the middle of it and playing it all the time, I I didn't really hear it. It was you know we just did it, and I'd notice if I felt I hadn't done the best solo in the world or if something was slightly out of time. So I was concentrated on the little things by then, uh, without having any understanding of what we sounded like out front. And we were hot. We were up there. We were as good as all the bands I loved. We just weren't as famous, but we were as good. And it really looked like we were going to do it. Yes. Uh, we came off. We did the third album. The Stones were going to have us as their opening act um, on their next tour. That was almost completely set up. And then everything fell apart. The type of stuff that that can happen in the music business. And Just before before you did that third yeah. album, the Gypsies, the one dancing on cold wind. When you yeah. went into the studio to do that, was that a lot quicker and easier than the first album because you'd just been playing that much longer? I don't think it was quicker. It wasn't quicker. The first album we did in about six weeks, from start to finish. Uh, about the same for Dancing on a Cold Wind. But what happened is because we'd done the first album, because we'd rehearsed so much, we actually went in and to a large degree wrote the songs the night before and just bust it in the studio. So it had a bit more of a live, um, a different feel. It had yeah. a different feel. The first one, we knew that material inside and out. We'd been doing it for five years already in various versions. The second album, 
wrote maybe a couple of weeks before we went into the studio, we got this concept for a whole story and uh, for one side. And almost all the vocals and everything, we just went in and said, okay, you do a third, you do the sixth. You, I mean, literally like that. And we were good enough that even if it wasn't the sixth someone was doing, it yes. sounded good. We all knew what we meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes us sound more technically amazing <laughs> than we actually were uh, in that none of us wrote music or read music, but we knew each other so well, we were able to do that. Yes. So when you came to record the Gypsies, did you say yeah. things were beginning to sort of feel quite, you know, like exhausted or was what, what, had there been some major changes with the band? There had, everything had collapsed. I did the Gypsies, we all did the Gypsies knowing it was over, um, which was very difficult emotionally. Um, our manager uh, decided he couldn't carry on. Paul had an accident and wasn't able to drum very shortly after we started. Uh, so we got some drumming from him before he had the accident. Luckily, the real big powerful stuff, yeah. but there's a whole load of stuff we had to leave drums off or he had to just do percussion or, or different things because he couldn't with his leg. And um, Tony, left he, he didn't so much left tony thought we were unhappy with him because he hadn't produced a hit single for us and we weren't but because we were in america and he was in england communications got crossed and unfortunately we parted the way with both of us feeling bad for the wrong reasons <laughs> you know it 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 might have happened anyway um because once we'd lost our manager and the drummer, there was going to be quite a while before we pulled everything together again. The momentum was suddenly stopped. Um, but anyway, all those things happened. And then we had to make the album because we had a lot of debts. <laughs> so we couldn't just fold up and go, oh, I feel so bad. I can't write new songs or whatever. It was like, no. We owe for all the equipment we rented for that whole tour. We owe the bus drivers and the bus company and the this and the that. So we had to do the album. Yes. And we, I had to uh, produce a lot of the album. Uh, although I wasn't credited as the overall producer, most of it was down to me. And I was well aware I was no Tony Visconti. I just didn't have the technical knowledge. I didn't, I'd watched him and I had a lot of ideas, but I didn't really know the nuts and bolts of it. I just knew he would do this or that and he'd use certain equipment and he'd get certain things happening and that's as close as I could get. So it, for me, it was a difficult album in that I think a lot of the material is great. Our playing was great, but my ability to produce was not Tony. So it was never going to match the other two. It was always going to be utterly different, you know, yeah. and luckily I'm, I'm reasonably proud of it for someone who was stuck in that position and had to come up with something. So rather than just bolting or, or, or going, I can't do this. I did the best I could 
which um, was never going to be Tony, but it's pretty good. You know, it's not an album I'm ashamed of, but I'm also aware it doesn't have the extra magic sound-wise. It is is tricky. Tony put it. Well, it's interesting because I think it was Joe Boyd who was talking about working with Nick Drake and just Mm -hmm. always felt like, you know, he kept sort of thinking, right, this one, Nick, we're going to do it. This is going to be the one It still didn't. And I think it was kind of a difficult relationship at the end because, you know, he just felt that responsibility of like, God, there's this guy who's just so brilliant and he just can't get, you know, he just can't get going and and I can't help him. And then, you know, obviously people get quite tortured. Did you feel absolutely strung out by the, the by the time that album came out or got completed well it it was difficult paul was in a lot of pain and frightened because he didn't know whether he was ever going to be able to drum again as it turned it turned out fine and it was wonderful in the long run but it took him a long time to uh get his leg and knee working again properly um I met uh, a producer who I have no idea who he was, but the record company we just signed with said, okay, well, we're assigning you, uh, not a producer, a manager, we're assigning you a manager and you're going to be going off to Australia and you're going to be touring, touring, touring and da, da, da. And we met the manager and none of us got on with it. We just thought, we can't work with this fellow. You know, it's just not the right combination. but when we said that, I went back and thought about it and thought, well, we're done. Because that's what the, the record company is offering, and that's it. And we don't know any managers, and we've got a real short window of time here, because the album's coming out. They've spent the money. They want to get going. And, um, and we can't work with the person they want us to work with. Oh, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Really, it was. You also kind of were you also kind of aware, thinking, God, in another short period of time, there'd been that kind of rise of, you know, there'd been the punk, uh, the prog rock world, but then there's punk rock coming along as well. With mm-hmm. at that stage, you know, we had Doctor Doctor Feel Good and the Doctors of Madness with Richard Strange, and then you know, obviously yeah. Iggy Pop and the Stooges had sort of been there, and and then you know, slowly the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and you know, the Clash started to appear as well. So, were you sort of also aware of this kind of next wave of sixteen to eighteen year olds coming along? Oh, totally. Now that, that happened about a year after we broke up. That all I became aware of all of this. The New York Dolls really starting to to break through and and uh, be part of this whole scene with the Sex Pistols and everything. And I just fell in love with the Sex Pistols. I loved the whole punk scene because it reminded me of the Garage Band beginnings I had. Everything yes. was two and a half minutes long. Songs. That's what you did. You wrote short songs with a chorus that just hit, 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 and um, I got it, and I thought, well, Carmen could have done this. I could have steered Carmen into something that absolutely would have fit this bill. But that was a year ago, and unfortunately, Roberto needed to make money, so he went off and and joined a very well-known flamenco company dancing in South America. He got a good gig immediately, so he was gone. John uh needed money to live and he told me if you could if you can think of any way to put us back together 
I'll stay with you, but I've been asked by Tull to join them. And if you can't, then I'll have to join them. And I know it's not going to be what we had, but uh, you know, I'm telling you, I'm there if you can do it. And I couldn't see any way to make it happen at that point. Yes. You know. So I mean, looking back on it, you know, I mean, I suppose hindsight's a great thing. But you know, during it's interesting during that period because you know, I sort of amazed, you know, with I mean, a bit of an obsession with David Bowie. But thinking kind of in that ten years, he did sort of ten albums, produced a few people relocated several times as well that kind of that energy and and also changed his style phenomenally i mean that energy to keep doing that kind of blows my mind and all the different personnel changes as well that he must have done yeah i mean how did you sort of cope with that kind of intense kind of window you know seeing people come people hurting them hurting their knee and stuff like that and then having to say look i've got to go and get a you know another gig for money i just wondered how you were sort of dealing with that kind of pressure uh, it was hard. I think I gave myself a hard time about not being able to work with that manager and, and being so tired at that point, discouraged because so many things, it wasn't one thing, it was manager, producer, drummer, you know, it was just like, it felt more than I could cope with. But then afterwards, uh, sort of two, three years later, when I realized, aha, I may not be so lucky ever again in my life. And that may be the best band I'll ever put together because I'm getting older and I can't, the, the circumstances aren't such that I could put something together that could rehearse like that and do that. You know, yes. I got to make a living, all that kind of stuff. And so does everyone else because I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not 20 anymore, you know? So yeah, it was tough. It was tough. I, I really beat myself up about it for a long time. So did you have a sort of, at the late seventies, did you have a, was it a bit of an existential angst period before? Because the next bit, you know, the, the, the story is like, the, you know, the David Bowie kind of introduction and the, and the show that you suddenly appear on in 1980. Yeah. So what was that? What was that? When what happened during that kind of window before that moment? It wasn't 1980. That was just the title of the show, right? That's that was back in '73. That was December in 1973, and he called it the 1980 Floor Show. But me. <laughs> yeah. God, <laughs> my research was hopeless there, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, so there you go. That was David, and he must have. That must have been right because I think that's such a strange thing that you did would have done that. God, yeah. that was it. Yes. So can I you remember much about that, that kind of performance? Oh, it was wonderful. Wonderful. Because if I remember right, Iggy was in the audience. Loads of people. Uh, Wayne County, Jane County by then was in the audience. Uh, uh, Marianne Faithful, who is just the sexiest woman alive. Yes. I thought was there. Uh, chatting to my sister and and you know just hanging out with us and the, and, and it was it introduced was by Amanda Leo wasn't it as well which oh was... god yeah I, I mean she was we had no idea what she was going to do she said she told boy I have to introduce them I have written it I have everything ready and he said okay you can 
and uh, <laughs> she insisted. <laughs> right. Okay. So there wasn't that moment because I, yes, because I saw Bowie's hair because he then sort of at the end of that bit of video, it's like, well, that's the Ziggy Stardust period, not his kind of ashes to ashes. Now it all makes sense. God. Yeah, it was all part of the final tour. He did that, and then I believe the final gig at Wembley. I can't remember now whether it was just before we did that or just after. I think it was just after, and then that was goodbye. You know, that was it. On did, to the fame and all that. That's it. This is my... Did you meet the sound man? His sound man called Robin Mayhew at that stage, who sort of worked with him for two years doing Ziggy Stardust. Going I, around. I probably did. I probably did. Um, but the truth is, I was pretty starstruck. So, you know, it's, I was mainly just looking at Marianne Faithful and, and Iggy, <laughs> Iggy Pop and people like that, because I'd been knocked out by him with Iggy and the Stooges back when he was in the States. And, you know, he, he would f fall asleep on stage. Yes, well, absolutely. You know, you know. <laughs> it was quite something. So, yes, yeah. so, okay, that makes a bit more sense then. So then what happens after the, after sort of 76, 77 with your, what, what do you then sort of navigate your life into? I had an almost, almost break again as, as a duo with my sister uh, singing. Uh, I met... Um, Herb Cohen and Jack Nitchie. And they were both not friends, but they were both familiar people to my mother because they had worked as bouncers and been in nightclubs that she used to perform in. And she was very good at communicating with everyone. She made friends with everyone because she was smart and she knew you never know when someone might be helpful at some yeah. point in your life, you know, or I might be able to help them, whatever. So Herb Cohen had just come off from Tom Waits and Alice Cooper and this, you know, amazing career. He, he started out as a bouncer. He was a bouncer in a nightclub that my parents worked at called the Purple Onion. And um, then he went on, was a very successful manager. So I went in and auditioned for him and he took me on. But it was a strange period of time for him because he was half in retirement at the time, too. He wasn't sure what he wanted to go forward. Yeah. With. So he kind of gave me a rehearsal space and just said, when you think you're ready, let me know, which is deadly because I'm never ready because it can always be better. <laughs> you know? Plus, I'd come right off my big idea. You know, and I didn't have a big idea yes. yet again. But he said, do you think your sister might want to sing with you? And she was in a band uh, over here. She was living in London still. And um, he flew over and we met up with my sister. And my sister said, okay, I'll give it a try. Yeah, sure. So she came back and Jack Nitsche was going to produce our first album when we were ready. And Herb was going to manage us. And um, I ended up doing session work for um, Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and Papas because of Jack. You know, he got me in on the session doing the acoustic guitar work. And um, the, the Turtles, the, the two that worked, ended oh, yes. up working, um, 
I can't think of the name right now, but the ones that worked uh, with Frank Zappa as his backup singer, harmony singers, the, uh, Howie and I can't think of them right now. No, no. Howard Marks and, and the other one. They, they were producing our demos and they were the funniest people I think I've ever met. We just laughed continuously. They had Camberwell carrots 24 hours a day and nice. just told the funniest jokes and stories ever. So that was a wonderful period. And it looked like, wow, this is all going to happen. And then as the months went by, I thought, you know what? Herb doesn't have the fire in him right now. He doesn't know where he's going. I think I'm kind of wasting my time because he's not really interested in getting involved, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so unfortunately it didn't work out. And then as that didn't work out, Barry Barlow left Jethro Tull and in 79 got hold of me and said, come on over and let's form a band and do something like Carmen. And I remember thinking, okay, I like the idea of, of going back to, to London because I've, I've had success. They seem to understand what I do musically, but I don't think doing something like Carmen is right because punk happened and nothing is the same. Yes. So I went over always with the idea, we're gonna end up doing nice short songs like I used to write, you know, except I think I write them better now than I did when I was 14 and uh, we'll see what happens. So that's what I did in uh, beginning of 1980, came over here to London and lived with Barry and we spent six months and John Glasscock was gonna be the bass player. And unfortunately and terribly sadly, he died literally about the night before I flew over. Yes. Party. Um, that was a hell of a shock, wasn't it? He was only 28. Well, he had a congenital heart uh, weakness that he didn't know about. And so because he lived the rock and roll lifestyle, uh, it affected him a lot more than it would have affected anyone else. They might have just looked a bit Keith Richardy, but yes. unfortunately it killed him. Um, yes. So we ended up, it was me and Chris um, Glenn from the Sensational Alex Harvey Band on bass and Barry on drums, and we were a three-piece. And we just, Barry really wanted the progressive thing still. And, um, and so the two of us were pulling in different directions as to, you know, arrangement and song, what we were trying to do. And it, it just wasn't quite working. So I ended up saying, I'm sorry, this, this isn't working. And, um, and then I met, uh, oh God, what's his name? Uh, he was producing. Um, oh, was that Mike Chapman? And Mike Chapman, he was producing Inietta's uh, album. And I met Mike Chapman's uh, accountant. Um, and <laughs> didn't really think you were going to say Mike Chapman's that. accountant, uh, I met because of my girlfriend back in LA. Right. And she knew the psychic that his wife went to. Oh, blimey. God, that's amazing. I so that's the way the music and, and showbiz often works. You meet through very strange, unexpected connections. The that yes. aren't like a regular job or anything like that. 
So through a psychic, I ended up meeting him. He ended up putting me in front of uh, Mike Chapman and getting me with a producer who was trying to get things going at the time, who produced about six or seven demos of my songs. And mm-hmm. Mike, two of them to Anietta and said, what do you think? And she said, I'd love to, to do them. But and, just, just, just to say, because yeah. she, she is one member of ABBA, really, isn't she? She's not, you know, she's quite a famous person, this... this. <laughs> yeah. So did, did you get to meet her? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's lovely. Absolutely lovely. She was completely down to earth. I have photographs taken with her in the office, you know, and, and stuff like that. Uh, very lovely. So again, Mike Chapman uh, was going to make me a house writer yes. uh, for his publishing company and all of that. And things didn't work out. Unfortunately, there, there were some hiccups and we just couldn't make them work. So unfortunately, that turned out to be a one off. I, I wrote songs for a lot of Swedish girl bands for a while. <laughs> and um, and then I got cancer and that stopped everything for a while. So this is because this was throat cancer, wasn't it? Yeah. My God, this is the early 80s. Did you manage to... <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you? yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> that was only 30 years ago. But it was, it yeah, was, 40. it was hairy. I was 33 when I got diagnosed and I was given six weeks to live because they said, you've had it at least a year or two. It's slow growing. And we think you probably got it everywhere in your body. When we operate, we're going to have to remove your vocal cords and we'll remove anywhere else there's cancer. So I said, I'm the type of person that needs to know bottom line. So what are we talking here? And then I'll make my decision what I'm gonna do. So they said, well, you could wake up without arms or legs. You could wake up in many different ways because our remit is to cure you of the cancer when we go in. So that was a big one at 33, you Mm. know, and really contemplate that. And what I did is I surprised myself because I thought I was going to say, you know what, I'm going to go on an ocean voyage. And when it gets too bad, I'm going to take a whole lot of pills. And that's that because I don't have much time. Um, But instead, I thought, hell no, I don't want to die. So I went back and said, I'll tell you what. If you give me the shot of keeping my voice and don't take out my vocal cords immediately, just in case something amazing happens, I'll do it. And I'll do it with all the will going. So it's not a waste of time for anyone, you know. And so the fellow who was in charge of everything said, yeah, I'll do that for you. And, um, and they did. And I'm so glad they did because they didn't have to take it out. Uh, mm-hmm. so, what, I didn't what did, so what did they have to do to just make sure they took out my thyroid yeah they removed my thyroid uh and then i had radioactive uh treatment for about a year which it has its effects and it did its things to me and i have certain things that don't work as well as they should um because of that because it was still early times i mean cancer now it's a whole different thing but it was pretty rough and ready and harsh back then yeah but it but I'm alive. Amazing. You know, I have to, to take thyroid replacement every day. 
for the rest of my life, but it hasn't caused me any trouble, any problem. And um, the interesting thing is I did something that the guy who was in charge, he was the head of pituitary and all of that at, at Bart's, and he knew what I was doing. I didn't. When I survived, within two or three months, I changed my name. And I changed, I changed my career and my name. I became a photographer. And when I came in and told him, if you don't mind, I'm not David anymore. I'm who Scrandle. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't say anything to me. He never laughed at me or anything. He just changed it on, on my records and all that. But he told my mother, give him time. He will go back to his name. But he's doing something that the Jews have been doing for thousands of years. And that's when the shadow of death comes close. You change your name so it can't find you. So he knew all about it. He said, this is a, an old strategy. He said, this is an ancient strategy. <laughs> and he said, I understand it. And you have to let him do it. And when he feels safe, when he feels death is no longer sitting directly on his shoulder, he'll come back to his original name. And that's exactly what happened. But she didn't tell me till I went back to my original name. I never knew about this. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's kind of extraordinary. But in that time with your new name, yeah. you, you sort of brought out or published, was it four or five books? Six. Six books. Six altogether. Six altogether. Photographic, Photographic books. They... What happened is I lived out a side of me that um, metaphor, I lived it out metaphorically. Since I was very little, the other great love of my life was monsters, as in dinosaurs and dragons, and the hope that something like that still existed somewhere mm. in some remote place. And I wanted to be uh, a Raiders of the Lost Ark, anthropologist, archaeologist, paleontologist. That was one of my earliest loves. I knew the names of every dinosaur when I was a little, really little kid. Um, and what I did is I went into an area of human experience that at that time was a bit like that because nobody knew much about fetish, S&M, and all the extreme things around it other than it scared them and they thought they were dangerous people. And I wanted to find out if that was true and, and, and how I related to them because I thought, punk, man, they just wear the same things they adopted in punk. Yes. It can't be that scary. So I went in and discovered what I thought. These are people dealing with um, pain and dealing with stuff, but to me, my take on it was they're doing an amazing job because they're not out killing people. They're not out doing anything. They, they have found other people that need to work, work this stuff and they do it together so that they can exist and not go insane with the memories of, of the stuff that happened to them. Um, so you found that generalizing, I'm generalizing. Yeah, of course. But, uh, but to a large degree. And I also studied and became a practicing psychotherapist. Six-year study, worked out of the Whittington Hospital in London for a year. 
um, so that I could understand what I was doing. So the books were, were trying to show, uh, then it became funny because the Spice Girls and, and all of that changed everything and brought all of that to the fore. But when I was doing it, for the first five years I was involved, uh, I had people try and do interventions on me because they were frightened I was going to get murdered. And, and I kept telling them, you don't understand. It's not like that, you know? <laughs> These are just people, and they're funny, and they're nice, and they have certain things that really upset them, and they found a way to deal with it that doesn't go out and, and harm people that don't want to have some harm. And it's not really harm. It's a game. Yes. God, that's amazing, isn't it? Wow, that was, that was quite a period of your life. So when did you change your name back? again did you have a moment did was it like yeah a moment absolutely it's when i met my wife and we uh my son first son was on his way and i suddenly thought you know what i've got a choice here because when my son's born at that point from that point on it's going to be very difficult to ever do the kind of practice i used to do to be the guitarist I was and make the music, you know, to the level. Mm -hmm. So if I stay just being an anthropologist photographer, which I've done now long enough that I think I've, I've kind of learned what I was trying to learn. I'm never going to get back into music. I'm going to miss my shot. There's, other stuff is coming. I can feel it. There's a, you know, a giant yes. wave change coming to my life. So at that point I thought, and if I'm going to be a musician again, I have a history. So I might as well go back to the name. I was always making music under and that David Clark Allen, which is what I was, that's the name I was born with. Um, and that's, I made my choice and I started getting up at like six in the morning and practicing for four or five, six hours before everyone else got up and needed me. And um, I did that for years. Yes. That now if you paid me, but I did it then. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was 2006, you got the reissues of the, the three Carmen. Angel Air. Yeah. And, um, yes. So you got the reissue of those, yes, those albums. There'd been a reissue back in the 90s by Line Records, a German record label. They reissued all three albums in the uh, early 90s, um, or even late 80s. I can't remember whether it was late 80s or early 90s when they reissued. Then Angel Air is the second reissuing. And along with Angel Air, it's been reissued about five times in Japan. Uh, in different beautiful packagings and things. I mean, my God, they do beautiful packagings. So do you, are this. you still finding lots of people discovering the music for the first time? Is it that sort of, because it's such a complex, you know, those albums are quite, have a complexity and sort of an intriguing quality, you know, to them. You know, as I could imagine people thinking, oh, what the hell happened here? Because <laughs> you don't fit into any narrative, yeah. do you? You know, no. There are a lot of fans, um, many of them from back in the day, but there are a lot of new fans. I've, I had a video sent to me a few weeks ago of a 22-year-old uh, Latin girl in uh, California who uh, sang uh, the whole, whole song of ours and danced flamenco while she was singing. 
uh, and saying, you've inspired me so much. So I'm not saying there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of people there might be, I don't know. I don't know them, about them. But a lot of people considering that 60 years ago almost. Yes, absolutely. 50, 50 years ago, 52 years ago. Um, uh, you know, yeah. It, so it's Because you, you've got an a, um, instrumental album, haven't you? The, the mm -hmm. one titled Wide Screen. So was this... Yeah. Did you form a band for this particular project? I didn't form the band for the album. The album was just me and uh, a friend called Larry Lush, who was a producer, and I paid him to produce uh, the album with me. But then when I gave that to a friend who lived down the street, who was a promoter, um, he said, I've just had a band drop out of me at the last minute. And I've got a band playing, um, uh, the, it was the Apollo Hammersmith or something like that. Would you open for them? And I said, who are they? And he said, Buena Vista Social Club. So, you know, I'm asking if I need someone to open for them. And, and that was like a week away. And there was no band at that point. Yeah. <laughs> it was just me. And I almost said no. But the violinist who I had hired to be on the album happened to be sitting there and he said, well, I've got, uh, um, you know, a group. So if you don't want to do it, I'll take it. <laughs> and that was enough. I said, nope, we're doing it. And so he, myself and Larry uh, were the original widescreen band. And we put in a week's worth of uh, rehearsal and went and did it. That must have been a fantastic gig because it kind of, at that time, they, they just caught a sort of zeitgeist moment as well. It was wonderful because then we did the Barbican uh, a few weeks later for them, opened for them again. Um, and then the violinist left, my first violinist, and we had um, the Roundhouse with the Ojos, del, Ojos de Brujo. And um, I had... a two weeks to find a new violinist who had to learn all the material. And the violin was very important because they did a lot of duplicating solos and melodies with me. Um, and Pia had been friends with an actress who played violin because we had kids the same age and, mm. and you know, sort of bonded over the kids. So she said, why don't you ask Charlotte? So I went to Charlotte and she said, oh my God, I've just forgotten I had a family. <laughs> and, and she did it. And she worked for years with, with me. Probably one of the finest violinists I've ever worked with. Not because she was technically like a Paganini, but she had so much heart, she could make people cry with her violin. And she was an actress and brilliant on stage fantastic so, you know that was a long wonderful relationship yes because for, for almost the next 10 years you formed several different yeah. outfits don't you and but all based around uh charlotte and myself most of them you know right. as the, the core so your last was this the last one was pepper was it papa tigre yeah right. and papa tigre was the only time Charlotte didn't work with me in the last sort of eight years or so of me performing live. And, and that was more a Tex-Mex um, 
sort of rap band almost, uh, you know, where I told stories over James Brownie, Southern California influenced funk. Yes. Amazing. And then, so then, so that takes us, so the last five years, yeah. have you been doing sort of other creative studies and PhD? I've moved off. Yeah, I moved off in a completely different direction. So what, I, ha- what happened to you? Did you think, right, that's it. I've really got to do something else. This no, is no. My bass player quit unexpected, unexpectedly. Uh, and much of the band was based around his playing. He, he is a phenomenal bass player. He, um, he's as good as John Glasscock in his own style. He's a different, but he was an absolute amazing funk player. Uh, my God, he's world-class. That's all I can say, world-class. So that when he left, the thought of having to find someone else was too much at that point. Yes. You know, I was already in my mid-60s, going 63, 64, and we were gigging all the time. But the thought of putting yet another band together that actually didn't make any money. <laughs> we gigged a lot, but, you know, we barely covered costs. Yes. Um, just I felt I wasn't up to it anymore. It was a wonderful band. And I just thought, OK, I've gone out on a high. I, we obviously somehow didn't get seen by the right person. But we were world class. It just wasn't our time. That's all. Mm-hmm. So that's what made me decide. I thought, okay, I'm not going to look for another bass player. I'm not going to go through this whole thing of the energy it takes to do all of this. I got to find another direction. And I had no idea what that was. And my wonderful wife, uh, who has so often pointed me in the right direction, said, why don't you do a master's in music? She said, you've done music all your life and you've done it completely off, you know, like, uh, what do you call it? When you just on the wing, you know, you you have no actual correct knowledge of music. You've just been in it, you know, and what kind of music might you make if you studied it and really looked at it critically? Good idea. So I thought, yeah, but if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need to know how to record myself and produce myself to a standard I would be happy with. So then I went and found a a two and a half year course teaching me how to produce an engineer. And I did that and put the master's off. I did a master's at Goldsmiths, but I put it off by a year. Uh, because the timing wasn't quite right. So by the time I went there to do the masters, I really knew uh, how to record. I had to set up a proper uh, studio at home. Um, And it was wonderful. Uh, I think that's probably the most fun, those four and a half years. Then at the end of it, I was so into the academic side of it as well. I loved the critical thinking thing. and and research that I thought I'm going to do a PhD on, on what, I've done, what I've done my master's on. I'm going to do a PhD and really get into it deeply because this is really touching on the fact that I'm Mexican American and I have never fully embraced that because that was not a good thing to be when I grew up. So I thought, yeah, 
now it's taken me two years to get the point, but I start next October. I got it. I've got, I've got everything in place. I, I've got an unconditional offer and I'm going for it. Fantastic. Well, it's got to be done, hasn't it? So you've, yeah. you've, got, you've got a supervisor. Two. I've got two supervisors. Um, I've got a wonderful school. University of Leeds Music uh, is top notch. Oh, and, and it's practice based. So I've got to produce about an hour's worth of music, new music, as well as write. And the music, of course, has to demonstrate what I've written about. And um, I am so excited about it. It's going to be scarier than hell because I've been really looking into what a PhD is. And you can't mess about. (laughs) You've got to really come up with the goods. (laughs) (laughs) So with your with one of your lecturers or your supervisors, is one of them called James Allen by any chance? No, uh, Martin Idden is one of them. And Stan Erot is the other. Stan Erot is Irish, was in the music business and has now been an academic for many years. But he's just got a great take on, on well, he's Irish. They know music, you know, yes. in their soul. So he's got a great take. And Martin loves Hollywood. That's his special thing. So he's really excited about the fact that Hollywood is the backdrop to the PhD, to what I'm going to be researching. And, and oh, fantastic. No, I, the reason about. I mentioned the other guy was that he was mm-hmm. in a band in the very late 70s, very early 80s called Girls at Our Best. And then he becomes a... I think he teaches on a music course in Leeds. That yeah. is not, God, that'd be amazing if you had I will probably meet him. I would think I would meet him. Yes, that'd be very sweet. That's yeah. a, he's a lovely guy. So look, what, so, so last kind of question. I mean, if you, if you could have said something to your 16 or 18-year-old self starting out with all the yeah. kind of experience and wisdom that you've picked up, I just wondered if there's a few kind of key points that you think, God, I would have just loved to have whispered that into their ear. Even if they ignored it, I would have still thought, yeah, I'll just, I'll just say it, you know. You know, it might be say, keep doing this, or it might say, oh, also think about doing that as well. Mm. I, th- oh, yeah, I think I'd probably just say, don't waste time regretting what you think you haven't done right. Because only time lets you know whether choices were good or bad. You know, it's like I thought for many, many years that fame and fortune, like Led Zeppelin or or that kind of band, was what I wanted. And what I've realized over my life is, although I might have enjoyed that, I don't think it's actually what I've ever really wanted. I think that was more my mother's dream. I think what I've always wanted is to have a really interesting life. I've wanted a life that challenged me and that allowed me to change and experiment and find out what I'm capable of. And um, that is the life I've had. But it's, I spent so many, I think I got cancer because I was so, angry at myself for what I saw as blowing Carmen's chance by not somehow pulling it together and, and, and making it work 
despite the problems that happened. Mm. Um, and, and that was a waste of time. And I've done that kind of thing many times in my life where I thought, oh, I made the wrong choice or whatever. And then I didn't because something else came up that was just as important and probably more important for my growth, you know, and, and leading an interesting life. Yes. Well, blimey, you, you've, you've definitely packed it in. You put a lot in there. <laughs> and it's great. I mean, actually, the studying thing, I think, is just brilliant. I did meet another musician, I can't remember, but he, after all this time, he's like, I'm retired, so I decided I'm going to do a PhD. And it's yeah. like, yes, well, you know, that will be the best thing ever, I think. You know, it'll be a nice thing to, yes, because you don't know you'll meet lots of new people, you'll sort of have lots of new ideas, you know, and hang out in a student environment, which is always going to be exciting. And it'll just feel like, oh, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is this keeps it light and exciting. So um, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing to do, actually. That's what I think. So there you go. But look, well, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for your time. I, just, I can't believe how much, uh, how interesting that, you know, I, I sort of knew bits of the, the 70s, but all the other bits as well was just fantastic. And uh, incredible. Well, look, there's a lot to think about. Well, actually. Thank, look, thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, thank you. And if you want, I can always send you the... Um, the, the link and you can always you know use it if you Lovely. want yeah. to use it elsewhere. oh absolutely absolutely who knows uh you know it may come into my phd for all i know <laughs> you know well it's nice to yeah and i've really you know it's, it's been great doing these but um but this has been fantastic well look thank you and have a really nice you know nice evening and uh, enjoy the moon and um yes have a great winter as well and all the best for the phd but thank thanks you. again okay take care okay. bye-bye bye-bye and that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. I know, I am so fumbly. But um, a massive thank you again for uh, David Clark Allen for giving me the time for that interview with Carmen. Uh, this is the Being the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Obviously, keep it nice and positive, otherwise don't bother. Bother. And also, all these interviews have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a fabulous week. Stay safe and um, catch up with more quality chat or something like that. Anyway, bye.